0: where we're looking at this magnificent story of Jesus walking on water. And before we get too far into today's message, I believe I need to start with a, a confession. I think this confession is probably true of most, most pastors. It's certainly true of most of my uh, subgroup of people, which is a uh, nerd. And um, that is that I am a... kind of a big fan of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, You guys know the Lord of the Rings, uh, J.R. Tolkien, Uh, master story about this evil uh, Lord Sauron who has this ring to rule all of the world and is going to bring the whole world into darkness and everything falls on the the shoulders of this little hobbit who has to take a a ring, uh, this ring of power that he he ends up uh, having possession of and try and destroy it and there's wars and there's battles of, of good and evil and there's wizards and there's walking trees and I mean it's everything that you would want uh, if, if, you're, uh, if you're a nerd. And so, uh, The Lord of the Rings is a, uh, a big story that everybody knows. And then, then uh, last year, uh, because there are plenty of nerds in the world, um, Amazon uh, decided to make a, a prequel to The Lord of the Rings, trying to take some of the material about Middle Earth, the place where Lord of the Rings happens, and, and kind of develop this story that happens thousands of years before uh, the, the Lord of the Rings um, uh, events happen, And they called it the Rings of Power, and it's all about how the ring comes into existence. And the, the thing that is uh, fascinating about uh, the, the Rings of Power, it's, it's, it's an okay show, I think it's worth a watch, is that we are given this story that we don't know anything about, And we meet some characters that we don't exactly know who they are. They don't even know who they are. In fact, in one of the very first episodes, there is this man who comes from like the the clouds, like in a meteor. He crashes on the ground. And for the whole show, he's just known as the Stranger. He's this uh, long-bearded guy who doesn't know who he is, doesn't know where he comes from, and he's just walking around uh, Middle Earth uh, pretty much dazed and confused, but he's mysterious. He's, he's, he's got power, and he's, he's got abilities that, that uh, make people wonder, is he good? Is he bad? What's he, what's he going to be? And so we have this stranger, and as we're watching the show, The Rings of Power, we're trying to figure out who is the stranger, And he is revealed gradually through the show, but he is also revealed quite clearly if you're familiar with the books, The Lord of the Rings. Because as the episodes go along, there are these things that the stranger does that match up to the character in The Lord of the Rings. And as you you see all of these matching up events, you realize that this stranger is actually... I hate to spoil it, Gandalf. This character becomes Gandalf, which we just, oh, I know I've got some faces like, oh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but the reason that we know that this character is Gandalf is only by seeing how he in this Rings of Power lives out, acts, and speaks like the Gandalf of the future. And the reason I took you on this nice long tangent is because that is what is also happening in in the Gospel of Mark. All the way through the Gospel of Mark is the question, who is Jesus? And if we take the passage that we are in today, I mean, that question is prominent. Who is Jesus? And what Jesus does in this passage, as well as many others, but, but three very prominent ways in this passage... He acts and he speaks in ways that make it very clear what his identity is if you are familiar with the Old Testament. If you are familiar with the book that was written before he came, if you know the Old Testament scriptures, Jesus is revealing his identity in this passage in clear and unmistakable ways. Now, why is that so important? Because as, as, as we deal with the identity of Jesus, we deal with an important subject about Jesus today. Uh, as, as I've shared from time to time, there are different surveys about the state of theology. And the state of theology uh, in 2022, taken by Lifeway Research and Ligonier Ministries, surveyed the general American public, and they came... We're not ready for that slide. They came to... Um, to this uh, result from their their scientific survey, that 53% of Americans agree with the statement, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 53% of Americans. And then when you just look at the evangelicals, those who are part of of a a, a gospel preaching church, when focused on evangelicals, the number is still 44%. 44%... Do not, in the church, recognize the identity of Jesus. As I've been reading uh, this last couple of weeks, another book called The Great Dechurching, a book that is, is trying to get its mind around why have 40 million people left the church in the last 25 years. And they have surveyed the, the kind of the theology of several of these waves of dechurching. And uh, of the group that is, uh, identifies themselves in the category of a cultural Christian, people who are going to church because going to church was the thing uh, that, that you do, it was, a, it was a good thing to do, when the cultural Christian is examined by this book, The Great Deturching, they are discovering that only 1% of that group of people embrace the truth, Jesus is the Son of God. That means that a great number of people have been in our churches, have been listening to our preaching, and they have left our churches, and they, they, they do not even know who Jesus is. 99% of them do not know. So I believe that the, the question of who is Jesus is so important. Many of us went through a wave of Of uh, listening to the Da Vinci Code and and all of the the talk about, well, uh, the Da Vinci Code tells us that back in like the third century, the church voted to make Jesus God. And that's that's why uh, Christians believe that question. So I think it is actually important to deal with something so fundamental, so basic as the question, is Jesus truly God? The key question is, is Jesus truly God? And what we are going to see is that when we hear the scriptures and we see what Jesus does, when we understand his acts and his words, we realize that Jesus reveals himself clearly and unmistakably as God in our passage today. We're going to go through this passage and we're going to see three proofs of Jesus' divinity. Now, now the reason I want to stress all of this—now we're ready for the slide— is really these objectives. I want to make his identity clear so that you both know him. I don't want you to be one of these uh, 44%. And I also want you able to defend this truth. Because this is obviously a a truth uh, that is in doubt in our world today. So I want you to be able to know him and to be able to defend this truth. And then most importantly, I want you, in knowing this truth, to have a faith that reflects Jesus' true identity. A.W. Tozer wrote a, a wonderful book called The Knowledge of the Holy, and he starts out the book by saying, what a person thinks when they think about God is the most important thing about them. And why is that the case? He argues that none of us ever rise above our understanding, our thought of who God is. Perhaps the reason that the evangelical church is so weak, so lukewarm, so ineffective as a cultural witness is because within our midst, what we think about Jesus is way too small. So I want us to have a faith that reflects the true identity of Jesus as we find in this passage. So let's look at this passage as we're going to see three proofs of Jesus' divinity. First, uh, and if you uh, are also uh, unfamiliar, we have a note page that you can follow along with the sermon. It has fill-in-the-blanks, and it also has questions at the end that we will, we will talk through later. Anyways, the first proof I want us to see in this passage of Jesus' divinity is that we see Jesus' divinity through his acts, we see Jesus' divinity through his acts. And we're going to focus on, on verses 45 to 48, which is the, 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 the story goes that they've just fed the 5,000. And Jesus separates from the disciples. He tells the disciples, I want you to get on the boat, and I want you to cross the sea. And then he decides that he is going to go up uh, to, the, to a mountain, and he is going to pray. And so that is how this, this story begins. Jesus is far away from the disciples. He is up in the mountain. It is It is nighttime. He is praying, and the disciples are out in the Sea of Galilee. And then we are told that the the, the sea is very rough, that the waves are very strong, and that the disciples are struggling mightily trying to make progress across the the Sea of Galilee. So the the events get very exciting, we're told, in the fourth watch of the night. The fourth watch of the night is basically 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Now 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., uh, that's, that's dark, right? That's the dark, dark time, right? Uh, it's always darkest before dawn. So here we are somewhere probably in that 3 to 4 a.m. Uh, time period. They have been put out to sea at the beginning of the evening. So just as it began to be dark, the disciples have been put out to sea, and they have been rowing across the sea, and they have been making difficult progress. But here they are, you know, eight, nine hours into this project of getting across the Sea of Galilee eight nine hours of fighting the wind and the waves and they're they're exhausted they had a busy day the day before and they're isolated they're clearly out in the very middle of the sea the point of all of this is that they are clearly out of reach of Jesus' help Jesus is on the mountain they're in the middle of the ocean in the middle of the sea uh, they are in the Pitch black. They're out of reach of Jesus' help. But then we read a, a, a curious little uh, phrase at the beginning of verse 48. Verse 48 says, uh, And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. He saw in the middle of the night, in the darkest part of the darkest part, in the middle of the sea, which is miles, miles long, while he is located on a mountain, his disciples, a little speck on the sea in a boat, and he could see that they were struggling. That is a, a, a beautiful statement. Like God, Jesus here has his eyes on his people. His people don't know Disciples don't know at this time that Jesus can see them. They feel the exact opposite. They're feeling as stranded and isolated as possible. And yet we are told that Jesus still has eyes on his people. But then more fascinating, where, where I ultimately goes to is the next part of verse 48. It says, he came to them walking on the sea. So the disciples are in the middle of the sea, and Jesus comes to them by walking on the sea. Now, this phrase, walking on the sea, has troubled numerous people over the the centuries. It especially troubles the the very scientific, rational-minded person who uh, struggles with a clear impossibility, right? Water does not support human feet. You cannot walk on water. And so uh, you can find uh, several people trying to explain what actually happened by saying something to the effect well, uh, the Greek really means that he was walking beside the waters. Or then I've also heard some uh, very clever uh, opinions that there was this sandbarge that was just underneath the the, the water that you couldn't see, but Jesus was walking along the sandbarge and it looked like he was walking on the water. And I even have heard a, a scientist who said there was there there is the possibility of some some uh, kind of uh, ice formation that can happen in the in the Sea of Galilee. And so, what was probably happening is that Jesus was walking on some some ice platforms, and, and that we couldn't see them. Now, all of those, I think, uh, are ridiculous. Uh, they don't take the text seriously. But but why are we going to that effort? to find a natural explanation the reason is what we are seeing here is impossible right it is impossible that is that is acknowledged this is an impossible thing but these different explanations we have to admit they 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 fail they do not satisfy first of all the disciples they know the sea <laughs> They know there's no sandbarge right next to us. They have been all over the sea, and they know exactly where they are, and there is no sandbarge. Second, unfortunately, we, we can't twist the Greek to say anything more than he was on the waters. And finally, what do the disciples do when they try to come up with an explanation? They provide their own explanation of what they saw. They said, it's a ghost. Right? Now, we might you know, not like the thought that they'd jump to ghost, except I will probably uh, uh, I would suggest all of us have wondered, is there a ghost at one point or another? I'm not going to get into that, but that explanation was the only thing they could reach for to figure out what could explain what they are seeing. And so they know it's impossible for anybody to be walking on the sea, so the only thing they could think of is maybe this is some ghost, right? Which is another reason why the scientific explanations just don't pass any muster. Because they didn't see Jesus, they didn't understand it was Jesus, they thought it was a ghost. That's what they thought. And we have to consider that as pretty strong evidence that Jesus is actually out here on the sea. So, what, what, what's all this amount to? When we can't accept these other explanations, we are forced to recognize that Jesus is doing the impossible. That's the point. Jesus is doing the impossible, walking on the sea. Why? Why do this impossible thing at this particular time? It is, as we are going to see, to reveal his divinity. He is doing this for the purpose of disclosing his true identity. And the reason why he is doing it this way is because There is only one person in the scriptures who has ever been described as walking on the sea. So those who are familiar with their Old Testament see Jesus doing what only one other person is claimed to be able to do, and that person is God. When we look at Psalm 77, 19, we're told, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Habakkuk 3.15, uh, speaking to God, he says, You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. You see, in the Old Testament, walking on the sea, walking on the waves, was an act of God. That was a thing that only God can do. And so here we have Jesus acting and doing what only God can do. It becomes even more certain that this is what Jesus is doing when we look at that curious phrase that he intended to pass by them. Look at verse 48, he meant to pass by them. That's, that's a strange verse. Why, why, why is Jesus strolling on the sea and wanting to pass by the disciples? This, this uh, uh, phrase has, has concerned people and they have come up with many different explanations Uh, I'm not going to bother you with all of those. I'm going to give you what is clearly the best one. He meant to pass by them is consistent with his walking on the waves in the first place. And this is what he is doing. When you see the phrase pass by, you will recognize from the Old Testament that that phrase is very common in what is called theophanies. Theophanies are appearances of God. Let me give you a couple. Exodus 33, 22. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. That is God revealing himself to Moses uh, in Sinai. Uh, Also consider Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 11. God said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. So this uh, expression, passed by, is Jesus acting in the same way as God, walking on the waves, and revealing himself by passing by the disciples. Jesus was enacting in fact, if you go to the book of Job chapter 9, it, it's almost like this, this verse could have been in the gospel of Mark. 9, 8 says, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. So you, you, you see what Jesus is doing here by walking on the water is clear testimony that Jesus is physically doing what only God can do. This is a revelation of his identity as God. So what? So what? Obviously, this is our first proof, but I also want to speak pastorally. Because Jesus is Emmanuel, right? God with us. We know from this passage that he is always watching over us. We know that he watches his disciples, even when we are far and, and, and struggling and exhausted. Because Jesus is Emmanuel, we know he is always watching over us. We are never out of sight or out of reach of our Savior. I was uh, thinking, um, how, how, can I, how can I make this uh, personal, more personal, and uh, I was reflecting on, on the, the difficult chapter of, of my life where uh, I ended my last pastorate and spent several uh, years jobless. And uh, there, there was a time where I truly felt lost and isolated, exhausted. I felt uh, like I couldn't make sense of anything uh, was going to happen that, that, that maybe I had just come to a, an end point and, and I'm going to have to change and be something completely different. And so I battled with you know, questions of identity, questions of, of purpose and meaning. Um, but a pastor friend of mine, very early on, gave me a verse of the Bible. He, he pointed me to Romans chapter 11, verse 29, which is Paul speaking, and he says, God's gifts and calling are irrevocable. God's gifts and calling are irrevocable. And for a long time, I felt like I lived in the darkness, I lived in the waves, I lived in the confusion and exhaustion of life with that verse, but I didn't see, you know, how how is that working? How is that happening? And yet, slowly but surely and ever so purposefully, Every single thing that happened to me from leaving my last pastorate to getting to this one was confirmation from God that your calling and your gifting is irrevocable. You you see, what I'm trying to tell you is that the Jesus who saw and came to the aid of his disciples here does the same to us. And if you have doubt about where he is doing that or how he is doing that, your doubts become less and less if you uh, put yourself in the scriptures. Let the scriptures speak to you in that darkness, in that confusion, in that wave-threatening uh, wave, uh, place, and let God show you his presence. There is a Savior that we are never out of sight of and we are never out of reach of. So let me ask you, where are you struggling? Where are you alone? Where are you covered in darkness right now? Listen to the words of our Savior in Hebrews 13, 5, and 6. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's the first proof. Jesus' divinity is shown through his acts. He acts as only God can act. Second, the second proof we see is Jesus' divinity is shown through his self-disclosure. Jesus is shown through his self disclosure. So the disciples, the first thing they do when they uh, see Jesus walking on the water is they become terrified. And I think that's probably a pretty reasonable reaction. I would be pretty scared uh, if I saw something that has never happened before, something so impossible. Uh, And so they panic and they think not only are the waves against them and the wind is against them, but somehow the spiritual world is like (laughs) coming after them. It's, It's their night of the living dead here. Uh, and so they think they see a ghost, and they are, are extra terrified. Now, the, the, the statement that they s- think they see a ghost really tells us something about this passage that we, we have to accept. And that is the historical reliability of this passage of Scripture. We believe that the Scriptures are, are reliable. We, in fact, we believe that they are, are inerrant. But it is important to see how we can see that by deduction. The historical reliability of this passage is made very strong in that this is a report given to us that does two things. It shows the disciples in a very bad light, right? The disciples do not look smart. They do not look courageous. They do not look very uh, faith-filled, right? So this negative picture of the disciples is something that would not be put into a passage that the disciples are making up. Because the first thing you make up and anything you make up is how great you are, <laughs> right? Just replay your argument with your, your, your spouse. You have all the best side of the argument when you share what, what was said and how you, how, you, how you handled yourself. We always make up the best for ourselves. Only when history demands it do we have to put in our warts. And that is what uh, we, we see here. It, so it, it shows poorly on the disciples, but then also it, it tells us that the disciples were dealing with visible phenomena, right? They were trying to explain what their eyes were seeing. That means that we are not looking at a metaphor, we are not looking at a word picture. We are looking at something that the disciples were trying to explain from their eyes. This is eyewitness information. And they are trying to make sense of it by calling it a ghost. And so there is a clear strength of the historical reliability of, of what we are reading here. And so in their fear, Jesus speaks. Uh, look at verse 50. Verse 50 uh, says, for they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. First thing I want you to, to reflect on is that these words are said by Jesus while he is still outside the boat, okay? These are words that he is saying while standing on the water. Secondly, uh, uh, so yeah, he, he says this outside the boat. Now, now there are two significances to, to this statement. First, he is obviously clarifying to his disciples that he is not a ghost. What they are seeing is really Jesus. So he is he is he is answering their uh, wrong view of things. He is clarifying that he is not a ghost but a person. But then also the second and even more significant thing he is doing, he is speaking here as part of this theophany, as part of this manifestation of his identity as God. The point here is that Jesus is intentionally disclosing his true identity. And why this is so important is because sometimes you will hear skeptics say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Uh, that, that that is something that, that the disciples thought of him, but Jesus never actually says that he is God. Well, that is, that is malarkey. He says it several places, uh, but I also want you to see that he says it here. Let's look closely at Jesus' statement. First of all, he, so he says, uh, do not uh, take heart, it is I, do not be f- afraid. F- first of all, does, does that phrase... Have a familiarity with it? Have you heard phrases like, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. We've kind of heard that phrase a few times. And we, we know where we've heard it. Where have we heard it? God says it a lot in the Old Testament. God says stuff like this. This is God stuff. This is, these are God words. Like, you know, take heart, it is I what does that matter if, it, if the I isn't God, right? <laughs> Take heart, Pastor Nathan's here. I, you know, I hope that doesn't get a whole lot of confidence, right? But it is I, when it's God, is very comforting, right? So, so it echoes very much like, like verses that we see in the Old Testament. Here's an example, Isaiah 41, 13. Isaiah 41, 13. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you, all right? So, so that is God speaking, and, and Jesus' phrase has a very similar familiarity with that. Now, the difference in Isaiah 41, 13 is that it's obvious that God is the subject, right? Who's the subject in verse 50? Jesus does not, take, does not say, take heart. Uh, our Heavenly Father is looking after us. He doesn't say, take heart, the God of Israel is with you. Uh, He says, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus is self-consciously taking a God phrase and putting himself as the subject. In fact, if you go to the Greek, the phrase, it is I is put in the place of emphasis. It is emphatic. The main thing that Jesus is saying, the first thing that rings in the disciples' ear most loudly, is the words, it is I. And so we have to ask the question, who does Jesus think he is in this passage to place himself in that kind of company? John Stott, one of my favorite pastors and theologians who passed away about a decade ago, Uh, has a great quote about uh, the way Jesus speaks of himself, the way he emphasizes himself through uh, his his self-centeredness. And I want you to listen to this quote. The prominence of the personal pronoun, I, 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 me, 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 is very disturbing, especially in one who declared humility to be a preeminent virtue. It also sets Jesus apart from all the other religious leaders of the world. They effaced themselves, pointing away from themselves to the truth they taught. He advanced himself, offering himself to his disciples as the object of their faith, love, and obedience. There is no doubt then that Jesus believed he was unique. Right? Jesus places himself verbally again and again in the place of God. We have seen this in the Gospel of Mark repeatedly. He forgives sins. He calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. He does uh, does all sorts of things where he teaches in his own authority, where he heals in his own authority. He is always placing himself in the same place as God. And John Stott says we really need to wrestle with that. Who does Jesus think he is? But Jesus' statement is actually even more explicit because when you look at it is I and you go to the Greek, the words it is I is actually ego ami. Ego ami. And I know that uh, we are not Greek scholars, but that is an important phrase because it literally means I am he. Ego ami translates most literally, I am he. Now here's why that's so important. That's the name God gave himself in the Old Testament. Look at Exodus 3.14, where God is speaking to Moses from the burning bush. God said to Moses, I am, ego ami, who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Or Isaiah 41.4, who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning, I the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he, ego, a me. So here we have Jesus announcing himself, ego, a me, in the middle of a theophany. Jesus is standing on the water speaking to the disciples, I am he, do not fear. Who does Jesus think he is? (laughs) This is blasphemy if it is not absolutely true. And he's standing on water, all right? (laughs) So let's give that in his favor, right? Jesus is disclosing his true identity. He is saying in these words, I am God. And a final confirmation of all of this is is at the moment he gets into the boat, we are told that the wind ceases. The wind obeys his presence, right? Just like the Lord. So when, when people say Jesus never claimed to be God, they are not speaking out of their intellect, They are speaking out of their ignorance. This is one of many examples of Jesus' self-disclosure that he knew exactly who he was, and he presented himself as God. So, So what for us? Because Jesus is Emmanuel, because Jesus is God with us, we also have nothing to fear. Beloved, what is your storm? What is your storm? Is it a health issue? Is it a financial issue? Is it a relationship issue? What is your storm? I want you to look at that storm and do just like the disciples were required to do to lift your eyes and see Jesus standing above your storm saying, fear not, I am he. That is what this passage means for all disciples. I want you to hear the Lord speaking to you above your storm. I am he. Fear not. The third proof then that we have of Jesus' divinity in this passage I want us to see Jesus' divinity through his holy nature, through his holy nature. So this uh, event on the, store, on the sea ends, they come to the shore, and immediately the crowd in an area called Gennesaret comes to him, and they bring all of the sick people in that, in that village, and they, they seek his healing. And kind of the whole thing is summarized in verse 56. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. So this little appendix to the end of the passage is also seeking to present Jesus and reveal his identity To those who are paying attention. The stranger is becoming uh, clear once again uh, through this passage. It is revelation of who Jesus is. And the reason we can say that is because, again, in the scriptures, there is only one who is credited as the one who heals. Only one is known for healing. Look at uh, Psalm one hundred three. Verse 3. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. Or consider Exodus fifteen twenty six: If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. In fact, Genesis 15, 26, or Exodus 15, 26 there is the location where God actually reveals his name as the Lord, your healer, which many of you probably have heard through the song Jehovah Rapha. Have you heard Jehovah Rapha? Jehovah Rapha comes from uh, Exodus 15, 26. Jehovah is not the best way we translate the Lord's name anymore, but uh, you know, some things stick. Jehovah Rapha. Because what we are revealed is true of God. Healing is so unique that it is an, uh, an evidence of God. God takes the name the healer because that is a truly divine work. And we may think in the world of modern medicine that healing has become something that is in our control, but if you really pay attention, All we do in medicine is try and remove things that are getting in the way of the healing process. Healing is still entirely something that the body either is going to do or it's not going to do. My wife has plenty of experiences of dealing with identical patients, and some bodies uh, respond with healing and some bodies do not. It is because healing is not something in my wife's control. It is something that she can participate with. It is something that she can uh, be a facilitator of. But she has no absolute control of healing. The only one who sovereignly has the power to heal is God. And here we have Jesus acting as the healer. We don't see him praying to God. We don't see him uh, putting these people in in front of God and saying, uh, God heals thee. He is the one that is healing them. In fact, it is more uh, interesting than that. The people touch his garment And it is his garment that is is communicating out this healing power, which is is a way of saying that Jesus is the manifestation, the incarnation of healing power. He is life-giving power in human form. That is what this text is showing us. Now, when they they touch his garment, what is so interesting about this is that the garment in... um, in the Old Testament, represented a boundary marker. And it was worn by by Jewish people as a way of keeping the uncleanness of the world separate from them. The garment was a way of saying, I am clean because my garment out here uh, protects me from unclean things. And so what would happen in, in usual circumstances is if an unclean person touched your garment, then they just made you unclean, right? The uncleanness went to the clean person. But what we are seeing here is something dramatically different. The unclean, the sick, and the unwell, and the infirm are touching Jesus' garment. And Jesus' garment is transferring the holiness and the life-giving power of Jesus into the sick. So what Jesus has is not a cleanness by avoiding Uh, the unclean. He has a cleanness that comes from his nature that is infinite in its density and infinite in its strength. That is what Jesus is revealing when they touch his garment and they are made well. So his nature is revealed in the healing as life itself. And who is the only one that has life within themselves, life as their being? That again is God. Jesus reverses disease and death because his divine nature as life itself is being shared with his people. And it's important to to dwell upon the healing power of Jesus. Uh, Many people... Come to Jesus seriously when they are sick. And this passage is definitely a reminder that when we are sick, bring your illness to Jesus in prayer because Jesus is still the healer. There are still healings happening today. I remember when I was in an engineering firm, uh, one of my friends, uh, his daughter, got diagnosed with leukemia. And uh, she took a, a turn for the worse. And the doctors had said, um, this, this is this is out of our control. This is not going to go well. And so that news got back to, to me and a couple other people in the office. And so we just ended up having a, a lunch period prayer time. And we just prayed. And that girl is still alive today. Uh, I believe that that girl is well because... Uh, Jesus Rapha answered those prayers and healed that girl. Now, there are also, we have to admit, not every uh, prayer for healing gets answered in the here and now. We have to always pray in faith and pray in God's wisdom. But we do pray to a Jesus who is healer. So I encourage you to bring your need for healing to Jesus. Jesus. But the healings that that, that we pray for and the healings that we see in Mark chapter 6, they really aren't the healing that we need most of all. You see, the healings that that we see in Mark chapter 6 are at best temporary. The healing of, of whatever Jesus deals with in this passage still means that person is eventually going to get sick and die. And the reason why is that Jesus' healings here do not take away the sin and the death In that person. The sin and death in that person still dwelled there. Jesus' life can go into that person, but until sin and death is truly taken away, healing is only temporary. And that is why we see Jesus as Jehovah Rapha not primarily here on the Sea of Galilee, but at the cross. Because true healing requires not just the giving of life, but also the taking away of death. And that is why Jesus goes to the cross. On the cross, he reveals himself fully as Jehovah Rapha. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 5. Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. With his wounds, we are healed. You see, because Jesus went and died on the cross, he officially and finally took away the source of all infirmity, all uncleanness, and all death by taking your sin upon himself. In paying for your sin. The gospel offers you the true healing power of God, which is the promise of the resurrection. Death, no matter when it comes or how it comes, is not unhealable in the gospel. You will be healed, and you will praise Jesus Rapha in face-to-face on the last day if you have your hope in the gospel. So is Jesus truly God? Does Jesus reveal him as divine? Yes, he reveals himself as divine through his acts, through his self-disclosure, and through his holy nature. You see, it wasn't the church that made Jesus God. Jesus revealed himself to to be God by being the one who does what God does in the Old Testament. Anybody who knows the Old Testament knows Jesus is God in our midst. That's why I want to finish with verse 52. Verse 52, the disciples after seeing this did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. You see, it is not the revelation of Jesus that is the problem. Many of us struggle to receive Jesus as he truly is, Because there is hardness in our own heart. There is a limitation to what we will believe in our own heart. And so the main challenge that I have for us today is to let your heart receive who Jesus truly is. As Tozer says, let your mind fully grasp the greatness of our God and be lifted up. Friend, Jesus has made himself known as the Son of God so that you can put your faith in him and fear no more. Have you believed in him with your heart? And the best test to know if you believe in him in your heart is that the believing heart is modeled by Jesus as the praying heart. The believing heart is the praying heart. And so I want to end with this challenge. Pray each day this week for Jesus to show you his true greatness that your heart might fully believe in him as son of God. When your heart removes all its hardness and receives that truth, major things will change about how you see yourself, how you see your world, and how you live your life.